The year is 1271. A 20-year-old man from Normandy named Raoul develops unilateral edema from his right ankle up to his thigh. This is believed to be one of the first documented cases of venous thromboembolism. Fast forward to 1676. A physician by the name of Richard Wiseman, chief doctor to King Charles III, describes a woman developing a blood clot after giving birth. He wonders if a thrombus was formed due to an alteration in the physiology of a postpartum woman, leading to a change in the way blood circulates. Thus is born the concept of hypercoagulability. That finally brings us to 1865, where Rudolf Virchow describes the well-known triad of venous stasis, vascular wall injury, and hypercoagulability. While we know certain events and risk factors lead to someone being at increased risk of clot, a question remains surrounding why certain individuals and certain families are at increased risk to begin with. Why do some people clot even in the presence of little or no risk factors, while others will never suffer a thromboembolic event in their life? Today, our patient has an unprovoked pulmonary embolus, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, Your Learning is Not in Vain, and is about inherited thrombophilias. Let's start with our minute physiology. To be able to understand why some people can have a propensity to clot, we need to take a step back and talk about the coagulation cascade. The coagulation cascade is a series of steps involving enzymes, or factors, with the ultimate goal of generating thrombin, which promotes the cleavage of fibrinogen into fibrin monomers, which polymerize and form a clot. Each enzyme in this cascade starts out as a zymogen, i.e. inactive form, and then once activated by a proteolytic cleave, it is released in its active form. The body has several regulators of blood coagulation, including antithrombin, protein C, and protein S, which all function to naturally inhibit coagulation. Antithrombin acts by inhibiting formation of thrombin and clotting factors 9, 10, 11, and its activity can be accelerated by a thousand times by heparin. Protein C inactivates factor 5A and 8A, found on platelets and endothelial cell surfaces. It is a vitamin K-dependent protein, and its activity is dependent on the presence of its cofactor, protein S. Alterations leading to reductions in the activity or quantity of antithrombin, protein C, or protein S can thereby promote hypercoagulable states. These mutations are present in less than 0.5% of the general population. Hypercoagulable states can also occur when genes encoding clotting factors undergo point mutations. This is the case of the autosomal dominant mutation in factor 5, called factor 5 Leiden, FVL, which renders factor 5 resistant to activated protein C. This affects approximately 5 to 8% of Caucasians worldwide. Mutations of the promoter regions of prothrombin, a thrombin precursor, may also have a similar effect. This is known as prothrombin gene mutation, or PGM. This leads to increased thrombin generation, which contributes to a hypercoagulable state. In all, 1 to 4% of Caucasians worldwide are heterozygotes for this mutation, and may have a mildly increased clotting risk. Homozygous carriers of these mutation alleles, or compound heterozygotes, heterozygous for both FVL and PGM, make up less than 1% of the population, and are associated with markedly increased clotting risk compared to their heterozygous counterparts. Given the delicate balance of procoagulant and anticoagulant factors in the coagulation pathway, any decrease in functioning in the anticoagulant pathway, 
and any increase to the procoagulant pathway may lead to a hypercoagulable state. Okay, let's talk about our approach. Your initial approach to a patient with venous thromboembolism, VTE, remains the same regardless of whether you suspect an inherited thrombophilia or not. Firstly, your goal is to ensure hemodynamic stability. This is especially relevant in the case of pulmonary embolism, PE, and significant deep vein thrombosis, DVT, which can lead to compromise of circulation, causing a phenomenon called phlegmasia cerulea dolens. It is also important to rule out an arterial thrombus. In these cases, you may need to involve thrombosis specialists, vascular surgeons, and consider immediate thrombolytic therapy. Once you have ensured hemodynamic stability, you can begin gathering clinical information. It is important to determine whether the thrombotic event was considered provoked, secondary to underlying disease, event, or intervention, or unprovoked. This is key as it will guide investigations and inform duration of treatment. All cases of VTE require a thorough but directed history to identify risk factors. Your questions should rule out signs and symptoms of malignancy, including B symptoms, hemoptysis, changes in bowel patterns, and smoking history. Survey for inflammatory diseases. Do they have a history of inflammatory bowel disease, for example? Assess infectious symptoms, as we know infections such as COVID can cause hypercoagulable states. Ask about recent surgeries, travel, or trauma. Inquire about gynecological history, including active pregnancy, but also obstetrical history, including pregnancy loss. Always review patient medications as certain medications such as oral contraceptives, hormone replacement, and certain chemotherapies increase clotting risk. A past medical history is important to rule out above risk factors, but also to assess history of recurrent clotting, as this may alter your initial management. If your patient has a history of blood clots in the past, it is also important to deduce where those clots were in the vascular tree. Finally, a family history of venous thrombotic events or known inherited thrombophilia in first-degree relatives is important. The physical exam for VTE is focused. First, always check vital signs to rule out hemodynamic instability and ensure distal pulses are present with no signs of vascular compromise. Findings of VTE may include unilateral edema, pain, and erythema. You may also be able to elicit a Homan sign, which is when pain is elicited by passive dorsiflexion of the foot on the affected sign in the cases of leg DVTs. You should also assess for provoking factors, signs of malignancy with lymphadenopathy, digital clubbing, etc. If the portal vein is involved, you may see ascites and hepatomegaly as signs of portal hypertension. Further, anasarca may be seen if the patient has a nephrotic syndrome, which can lead to hypercoagulable state due to anticoagulant protein loss, particularly antithrombin. A plethoric or ruddy appearance of a patient's face may suggest polycythemia vera or myeloproliferative disorder. There are no specific physical exam findings that would make you suspect an inherited thrombophilia versus another cause of VTE. So how do we approach our workup? All patients presenting with VTE require the same preliminary workup, including a complete blood count, coagulation studies, renal function tests, liver function tests, and age-appropriate malignancy screening. Clinical presentation will glide further malignancy workup. Imaging with a CTPE or VQ scan should be done if PE is suspected. Historically, patients who were young had recurrent thromboses and VTEs in unusual places, such as portal, hepatic, mesenteric, and cerebral veins, would often undergo testing for inherited thrombophilias. However, it is now increasingly clear 
that there is little clinical utility to testing for inherited thrombophilias in most cases. Even in the presence of a family history of VTEs, testing for inheritable thrombophilias in families of the affected patient has not been shown to affect clinical outcomes. This is because a finding of inherited thrombophilia does not carry strong predictive value for VTE recurrence if anticoagulation is stopped. There are other clinical risk factors that are more strongly predictive of VTE recurrence, such as gender, the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies, and persistently elevated D-dimer. Further, a negative panel for inherited thrombophilias in patients with family histories of VTEs may provide false reassurance, as family history in itself is a risk factor for recurrent VTEs, even in the absence of a specific genetic mutation. Clinical value aside, testing for inherited thrombophilias is also expensive and places a burden on the Canadian healthcare system. The knowledge that a patient has a thrombophilia may sometimes inappropriately influence clinical decision-making, leading to decisions to commit patients to longer courses of anticoagulation without improving clinical outcomes. Nowadays, this testing is only rarely done. One scenario in which it is occasionally ordered is if it will change decision-making for asymptomatic family members around whether to start hormonal therapy or contraception. If, after discussion with a hematologist or thrombosis specialist, testing is indicated, then it typically includes protein C, protein S, and antithrombin activity levels, and genetic testing for factor V Leiden and prothrombin gene mutation. Of note, acute thrombosis and use of anticoagulants will affect levels and functional activity of many anticoagulant factors. Therefore, if such testing will be done, it should never be ordered during an episode of acute VTE. Direct oral anticoagulants should also be held for at least one week prior to testing, as they may impact on the results of clot-based assays for protein C, protein S, and antithrombin. The presence of DIC, liver disease, nephrotic syndrome, and high estrogen states can also affect interpretation. Now let's talk about the treatment. The mainstay of management of VTE, regardless of inherited thrombophilia or not, is anticoagulation. It is important to note that the presence of inherited thrombophilia in a first presentation of VTE does not add independent predictive value to the estimated rate of recurrence. Thus, it should not guide the duration of anticoagulation. Considerations for indefinite anticoagulation rather than the normal three to six months include unprovoked VTE, life-threatening PE or extensive proximal DVT, male sex, VTE at atypical site, mesenteric, portal, or cerebral veins, and persistently elevated D-dimers. The Herado O2 score may be used in female patients with unprovoked VTE to help physicians in shared decision-making with patients. The clinical prediction rule incorporates hyperpigmentation, erythema, redness, D-dimer elevation, obesity, and older age to provide an estimate of VTE recurrence. Practitioners should use clinical judgment when assessing a patient for long-term anticoagulation. Weighing risks and benefits for indefinite anticoagulation should be done on a case-by-case basis. Time for our Medicine Minute. Now that we have discussed the history, clinical presentation, diagnosis, and treatment, let's see what experts recommend when it comes to testing for inherited thrombophilia. As we have alluded to, Choosing Wisely America and the American Society of Hematology recommend against inherited thrombophilia testing in the cases of individuals presenting with thrombosis in the setting of major transient risk factors, surgery, trauma, prolonged immobility. While testing is accessible in many tertiary centers, the diagnosis of inherited thrombophilia in the setting of identifiable risk factors 
will not change the acute or chronic management of VTE. If testing for inherited thrombophilia in patients with VTE is being considered, it may be helpful to refer the patient to a hematologist or thrombosis specialist to discuss the benefits and drawbacks of such testing. To close, testing for inherited thrombophilia in patients with unprovoked or provoked VTE is rarely indicated or helpful, and in many cases may lead to downstream or unintended negative consequences. The testing is also unreliable in the setting of acute VTE and should not be ordered in this context. Instead, the circumstances of how the clot occurred and other clinical risk factors are more important when determining duration of anticoagulation therapy. And when in doubt, use clinical judgment, understand the patient and their goals, and involve your thrombosis specialists and hematologists. All right, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode on inherited thrombophilias. This episode was written by Dr. Chloe Gordon, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Eric Sang, hematologist, and Dr. Vicky Tagalakis, general internist and thrombosis researcher. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively managed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali. Theme music by Lakshmi Santhamoan. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. If you like this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.